Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science. Again, my name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking with Matt Grossman, who is the author of Artists of the Possible, Governing Networks, and American Policy Change Since 1945. Matt, how are you doing? Doing quite well. You were here with us about two years ago and are back very soon. Not only am I impressed by your book, but I'm impressed by how quickly you were able to write it. So before we get to it, Maybe you can just uh, remind everyone who you are, where you are, and and, uh, what you do. Uh, My name is Matt Grossman, and I'm uh, a newly reappointed, now associate professor of uh, political science. uh, Congratulations. July uh, at Michigan State University, uh, and I also direct uh, something called the Michigan Policy Network uh, for uh, students to write about state policy issues. Uh, And my first book was on uh, interest groups called the Not-So-Special Interests, uh, and I was interviewed here about that. And this one is on American policymaking since 1945. Yeah, it's... um one thing that I do know from reading your previous book and some other stuff that you've written is that you're not reticent to take on convention. Um, and you take on some of the big ones here, some of the big conventions in, in this, this field of, of studying how the public policy process works. So to start us off, I wonder if you'd explain a little bit about some of the, the big theories that you challenge in the book. Well, I, I really try to take a very holistic look at what causes policy change and uh, what are the major trends in American policymaking uh, and can, how can we account for them. Uh, and one of the, uh, the perspective that I uh, ended up uh, with after uh, reading uh, hundreds of uh, policy histories uh, is that some of the things that we, we think we know about policymaking uh, don't seem to be all that consistent uh, with the historical evidence. So uh, the first is that uh, most of the research on uh, the policy process tends to take uh, the agenda, uh, especially the agenda from the public or the media, uh, as having sort of the first step in the policy process uh, and uh, being quite important, deciding what issues to discuss. Uh, so that's the first one I take on. It, how important is it that an issue be uh, at the center of the agenda or that we've decided that we need to address a problem in order to get policy change? Uh, and then the second is uh, the sort of macro politics uh, literature that says that we can know the direction and amount of policymaking that we're going to get uh, via trends in partisanship, ideology, uh, and election results. Uh, and I uh, challenge that uh, quite a bit as well. Uh, and then the, the final uh, big uh, set of theories that I uh, challenge is that uh, we can sort of divide the policy spectrum into a, a few major types of policymaking and that the politics will correspond to what kind of policy type uh, we're looking at. And I find that uh, the patterns uh, just uh, aren't uh, quite that neat. Yeah, you write at the start of the book, sort of to this point, Uh, And I quote, the analysis pursued here focuses between the macro level patterns sought by political scientists 
and the micro-level explanations of policy historians. What exists in this middle region? Uh, what's the what's the nuts and bolts of this area in between these two bigger or not bigger these two other uh, traditions out there in the field? Well, I think so. I guess to define the, the macro as uh, sort of big trends in uh, parties, election results, ideology, uh, public opinion, and defining the micro as you know these uh, uh, individuals were working on uh, this particular proposal and they held this hearing and they endorsed this language and they got it through Congress. And uh, I'm uh, trying to draw from the micro level accounts to say how consistent are they with the macro level and then uh, can we build something uh, in the middle? And I think what comes out is that the middle uh, is is networks of uh, important actors in American politics uh, from the legislative and executive branch, but also from the interest group community uh, who uh, establish themselves as uh, major players in the policymaking process and then may or may not develop the kinds of relationships and ideas uh, that allow uh, policymaking to move forward. One of the really interesting parts of the book and uh, one of the, the real novel parts of the book is, is the data that you put together. And, and these, are, these are different data than we, we've, we've come to expect. And, and so I, w- I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, how you put these data together, uh, who helped you, and, and what they permit you to do that other data sources could not. Well, uh, it, uh, most of the data comes from uh, policy histories, which are usually book-length accounts of uh, policymaking in a particular issue area. So you have a book like Environmental Policymaking, 1960 to 1980. Uh, and the idea was that uh, these kinds of accounts give uh, play-by-play accounts of what happened. They also try to account for uh, why we got some outcome rather than another outcome. Uh, and my idea was to compile all of these uh, uh, so uh, there are several hundred uh, accounts uh, that uh, we then uh, systematically coded with a bunch of research assistants here at uh, Michigan State. Uh, and uh, to try to come up with, uh, number one, just a timeline, what uh, actions occurred. So uh, there were 790 what I call significant policy changes since 1945, and those were mostly laws passed by Congress, uh, but they also included some executive orders, uh, some agency rules, and some judicial decisions. Uh, that were considered policy changes uh, by these policy historians. Uh, And then I I went about uh, tracking the accounts that these historians gave for uh, each uh, a policy change uh, to try to figure out what the the most uh, commonly cited factors were and which uh, were not cited quite as often, uh, and also look, to look at the particular individuals and organizations that were credited with policy change. Uh, so with that second part, I can also create networks uh, of actors that were responsible for the same policy changes to get sort of a global look at who was involved uh, at what uh, time. And then I try to take the new data that I have and um, map on any previous data that we've been using onto uh, that uh, a new set. So the easiest thing is that uh, we have lots of data on a general pattern since 1945 in election results, public opinion, and parties. Uh, so I, I try to use that to predict uh, policy outcomes. Uh, and, uh, you know, whatever I can uh, map on to uh, either overtime change or cross-issue change uh, from other people's data sources, I try uh, to do that as well. How, how long did this take? What, what, what's the time span of the? Because this is this is um, 
sounds like uh, uh, it must have taken a lot of a lot of research assistance, a lot of reading, a lot of coding. What's the time span that a project like this takes you? Uh, I I started on it uh, almost as soon as I, I came to Michigan State, so that's uh, about seven years. Um, but you know, it wasn't my main project during the first uh, four years of that. Uh, so uh, the so to, to, depending on your perspective, it either took seven years or uh, it took uh, uh, my main uh, project of about a, about two years. It's, it, um, however long it took, it, it really did produce something very interesting, allowed you to do, do some very uh, interesting empirical analysis. Uh, one thing that you found, and we're not going to be able to talk about everything that you found, but one of the things that you found is that public opinion and media coverage, uh, two big parts of the, the story that we typically understand about the policy process, really don't matter that much, uh, particularly in isolation. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why this is the case. Have I characterized the finding in the right way? And, and, and if they don't matter that much, then, then what did? Well, I think there are several indications that uh, public opinion and, and media coverage uh, uh, don't have that much impact on, on the policy process, at least it's not as much as we've uh, hoped or that we have come to believe. Uh, first is that uh, trends in what issues are important to the public or what issues are being uh, addressed by the media uh, don't uh, comport well with where we actually see policy change. So if something uh, reaches the top of the public in the media agenda like gun control, it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to get it. Uh, and you can get uh, policy changes uh, like student loan reform, even if it isn't uh, near the top of the agenda uh, at the time. Uh, and then the second piece of evidence is that uh, trends in the liberal or conservative nature of public opinion uh, in, uh, don't seem to comport well with uh, liberal or conservative trends in policymaking in general. Uh, and then the third is just that policy historians uh, don't usually have explanations that involve uh, public opinion or media coverage. They occasionally do, uh, but uh, when public opinion and media coverage are you are involved, uh, it tends to be alongside uh, your inside factors uh, like uh, presidential leadership, uh, things happening in Congress, uh, and interest group advocacy. So uh, the 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 main reason I think uh, that that you have those three findings on uh, the lack of influence of public opinion is just that so much of the policy process is an internal story. It's about what's happening in Washington uh, between uh, legislators, administrators, and interest groups, uh, and they have at least you know some connection to the public and some uh, reason to be responsive in some cases, uh, but uh, the the connections aren't aren't quite as much as as our theory might uh, lead us uh, to believe. They're pretty insular uh, and they can make policy uh, without uh, much uh, attention or intervention uh, by the public. Now you you talk to people about these findings and they're a little counterintuitive, both to people who study public opinion, but also to the just the general public. What are, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the reactions and how you explain these kinds of findings to maybe um, people who are deeply engaged in, in outside strategies um, that, that focus on trying to change public opinion or try to shape media coverage. What, have you had any conversations like that? And, and how do you try to explain these kinds of um, empirical findings to those that um, you know, maybe are up close and point to anecdotes where, where media coverage does matter? What's, the, what's that conversation like? 
I would say I haven't had as much uh, pushback from sort of advocates or members of the public as I'm as I might have expected, um, because you know, I think it is now sort of conventional wisdom in the public that uh, Washington policymaking uh, is insular and can kind of go forward uh, without much input uh, from uh, the public. And if you talk, I mean, it depends what kinds of advocates, but if, if you talk to interest group leaders, uh, most of them know that uh, external mobilization is a tactic and important uh, part of some storyline. Uh, but uh, I certainly would not be surprised that uh, internal uh, negotiations in Congress uh, with the administration and among interest groups uh, are more important. I think I have had more pushback uh, from uh, people who uh, study the relationship between public opinion and policy uh, for uh, a living. Uh, and in part, it's about sort of the specific historical contingencies. So one of the p- big uh, findings in the book is that from 1961 to 1976, uh, we had a whole lot of policymaking across all branches of government, and it was very liberal in content. It expanded the scope of government uh, dramatically. Now, that is uh, wouldn't be surprising to anyone who, who studies uh, uh, policymaking, uh, although the extension uh, to the mid-70s might be a, a little bit uh, uh, more surprising. Um, but I think uh, people have all sorts of explanations for why uh, that uh, era was different than the others, and they uh, tend to, to uh, grasp on one uh, or, or, or to say that it was a very different uh, form of era. So that, uh, I think, is the, the main uh, point where I've found a pushback because uh, the, the approach that I take in the book is just to say this era was very different. It was multifaceted. There were lots of reasons for it. But we can't just say it was different because of public opinion or it was different because Democrats controlled uh, the legislature by uh, overwhelming margins um, because some of those things were true in other eras uh, didn't lead to the same thing things. Uh, and uh, the, it was also a period of uh, divide, part of part of it was a period of divided government. Uh, and uh, so it didn't quite match the uh, uh, the expectations that people have about what might create the liberal epoch. Yeah. In chapter five, you, you do some some different things. You and you reach some different conclusions about different policy areas. You write that the advocacy coalition coalition framework would be most useful for uh, the areas of agriculture and housing policy, path dependency for education, and punctuated equilibrium for nuclear energy and budgets. I wonder what these conclusions say about more general theories of the policy process, each one of them having maybe a, a slightly different approach that, that works. Um, what about the general theory that we can take away from the conclusions of your book and, and these specific findings about each policy area? Well, if we want to take, uh, you know, an inductive approach and try to build general theory from uh, national American policymaking uh, from the last seven decades, uh, then there isn't going to be a whole lot that we can say applies uh, to all or even most cases. Uh, I would say that the main things we can say is that uh, the executive branch and the legislative branch are usually uh, jointly involved in policymaking and that interest groups uh, have a a fairly large role uh, in uh, most policy processes. Uh, we can also say, I think, that the uh, that the interactions among those actors are quite important, uh, and that the uh, that their long term relationships and experiences together uh, make a, a difference in in the amount of policy uh, that you're going to see uh, and uh, the liberal or conservative trends uh, in uh, policy output. Uh, so that's sort of 
the, the starting point, I think, should be the starting point for any uh, new theories of, of uh, policymaking. Uh, and that doesn't you know, leave a whole lot uh, of uh, general ground uh, for building uh, a theory that explains uh, when we're going to get one type of policy uh, rather than another. Uh, in that chapter, what I tried to say is what well, looks like some issue areas are a little bit more similar to uh, the kinds of things that you would expect from some theories of policymaking uh, than others. Uh, and it could be that a part of our problem in the past has been that we've uh, selected some policies, uh, created a theory that explains those policies uh, and uh, expected the theory to travel. Uh, and people have been doing that in different policy areas with different theories. Uh, it could be that the theories don't travel very well, that they uh, really only explain policymaking in that area or in a few areas. You know, one of the other takeaways, it seems, and you write this right at the end of the book, is, is you say the best bet in Washington politics is always on the status quo. Quote, not much is the best answer for what might happen over the next decade. Does the, this kind of conclusion lead you to be a pessimist about the capacity of the process to solve major problems or even unforeseen problems in the future? Or is this kind of gradualism something that you take heart from? Uh, the I think it's certainly true that the status quo has a major advantage uh, in uh, politics, um, but it is also true that uh, to the extent that we change policy, we do tend to, to grow the responsibilities of government uh, over time. So the norm is to get uh, some expansions of government uh, responsibility uh, in a few areas at a time, and then only uh, sporadically uh, and uh, concentrated in the 1960s and 1970s did we see uh, a cross issue cross-branch uh, expansion uh, of government responsibility. Uh, I would say uh, that it is mostly dismaying uh, that uh, we don't uh, seem to have uh, a very coherent process for uh, identifying uh, problems that we want to solve uh, and uh, uh, evaluating alternatives and selecting one. Uh, but uh, I do see uh, some advantages uh, to uh, long processes of consideration and policy development uh, and uh, to uh, coalition building uh, across interests and across, uh, across parties uh, having a, a big role in the policy process. So um, the, it's dismaying that uh, it's, it's hard to change policy uh, and uh, that uh, the public doesn't seem to have a very a big role in it, uh, but it is uh, somewhat more comforting uh, that in order uh, to actually get the policy changes that we do have, it tends to take uh, a longer period uh, with experienced uh, individuals and groups uh, involved in negotiations. Yeah, this book is, is really interesting. Um, and as I mentioned at the start, this is the second in just a couple of years. Um, what's what's next for you? Are you, are you um, working on something new, uh, either with the similar data or similar methods, or, or um, what's what's on your desk? Uh, my next big project is on uh, differences between the American left and the American right. Uh, so we are uh, with this co-authored project with uh, Dave Hopkins at uh, Boston College, and we are uh, our main theory is that the the Democrats are uh, best conceived as a uh, coalition of interest groups. 
uh, whereas the Republicans are best conceived as an ideological uh, uh, coalition. Uh, and so we look at the uh, differences between the, the social group basis of the Democrats and the ideological basis of the Republicans uh, to try to explain things like why do we have a Tea Party on the uh, on the right and no real equivalent on the left? Uh, why does Republican governance uh, look quite different uh, than Democratic governance? Uh, and uh, and also to, to say a little bit about why we might have uh, uh, stasis or stagnation, uh, the big uh, point being that uh, the American public uh, remains uh, relatively conservative in a general sense, but quite liberal in uh, specific uh, policy areas. Uh, and so we have this uh, a general uh, uh, conservatism and specific liberalism that allows both parties to draw from uh, public opinion uh, to maintain uh, some support. Well, I, I hope when that project finishes and uh, you and your co-author will come back and you can join the, the three-timer club. Uh, until that point, you're in the two-timer club uh, with just a select few of others. Um, Matt's book, again, is Artists of the Possible. Governing Networks and American Policy Change Since 1945, published by Oxford University Press. I hope that everybody goes out and has a chance to read this. I think you'd really enjoy it. Matt, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. 